This podcast is made possible by Focusrite Pro. Beginning with Rupert Neve's ISA 110 preamp and channel strip design in 1985 to today's RedNet audio over IP audio interfaces, Focusrite has consistently stood on the cutting edge of audio production technology. Focusrite Pro represents this commitment to innovation and pristine audio quality with its ISA, RED, and RedNet ranges. Learn more at pro.focusrite.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Laraji, born as Edward Larry Gordon, may be most well known for his 1980 album, Ambient 3, Day of Radiance, a collaboration with Brian Eno for his legendary Ambient series of recordings. But Laraji's career has actually spanned more than 40 years and includes over 50 releases. However, music is only one element of this laughter artist, meditation practitioner, and mystic traveler. As Eno says, Laraji is one of the calmest and most serious people I've ever met, and also one of the most light-hearted. It's an unusual combination, but somehow both qualities show in his work. It's deep and bright at the same time. Jeff Stanfield had a conversation with Laraji from which excerpts were pulled for an article in Tape Op issue 141, but actually hearing the words and wisdom is an experience all its own. Enjoy. You know, what got you interested in music in the first place and what was going on musically as you were growing up uh, in uh, Philadelphia? Uh, I grew up mostly in New Jersey. I was in Philadelphia about two years, um, my first two years of life on the planet. But music to me was, I was exposed to music through the church on, uh, so it was celebration, prayer, uh, sacred music, and also the radio, pop music, Bing Cosby, um, um, whoever was popular at that time, uh, not King Cole, though the popular radio music and my mother singing around the house, um, listening to soap operas and her singing refrains from church music. I didn't think much about what music was doing for me. Uh, I felt that when music was happening, it was a livelier place to be. That music transformed the environment to an uh, easier, more harmonious, uplifting space space control, I guess you could call it. But at some point, I realized that music was a way for me to escape or to journey or to go into fantasy worlds. Um, that would take some pressure off whatever situation I was experiencing as a child growing up, either being uh, in a family and being subjected to adult supervision I felt like music was a bridge to an expansive place and helped me to realize why teenagers can go into their rooms and turn up the music and use music to block out the, the frequency of the parents, <laughs> block out the frequency of the authoritarian world. It's interesting that you, you say that, that you found it um, kind of as a, a retreat early on and you know, as you've progressed through your career and life, 
Obviously meditation and some solitude has been a, a huge part of not just your music, uh, you know, your integ music integration into that, but also just your personal life. Yes, uh, music is a staple and sometimes I'll go a day or two without music and then I'll remember, hey, I need music. <laughs> um, something I, I'm suspicious that music allows me to translate myself or transfer my sense of identity from this heavy corporal body to a weightless, spacious, uh, timelessness that I trade my body of flesh for a body of sound and music and that the spirit soars much further, much freer when it is identifying itself through a musical language rather than a physical body language. At, at, at what point did that start to make sense to you through, you know, in your journey, your musical journey? Well, at a young age, I, like I said, I used music to escape, to retreat, to go into fantasy worlds. But it was most deeply impressed upon me in mid-70s of having an audio listening experience of the worldly paranormal, where I realized that music of another dimension and otherworldly music could transport me to another dimension outside of or even within the third and fourth dimension. It was hearing a music that allowed my awareness to feel the nature of eternity and to feel the unity of everything in the universe occurring in the same moment of now. That was probably the deepest and most profound realization of music's power to transport the uh, mind and to uh, transform the environment within which the emotions are playing out. Do you, re do you remember what that piece of music was? The music was, um, the best I can describe it was brass instruments, multiple layers of brass instruments weaving this timeless symphonic uh, celebration. It felt like a grand celebration of the reunion of all souls, of all sentient beings in the present moment. A very, uh, I would say, brought me close to tears because of the excruciating beauty of the experience of, of feeling the infinite absence of separation from all things in the universe and, and it being celebrated by this music. It might have lasted five or ten minutes and while having the experience, my analytical mind was busy trying to figure out how this was happening. It wasn't a sound that was coming from an external source. And uh, I couldn't record it or write it down. And I was mystified by the experience. It uh, activated my awareness or my ability to be aware in another dimension other than what I was familiar with. Some might, some might call it the fifth dimension or the transcendental feel or the void. But there I was, or here I am, experiencing this expanded consciousness emotional state 
this expanded sense of love and adoration for the universe. And so that experience with that music shifted my direction in music performance and composition. And of course, it deepened my appreciation for the power of music to transport a listener or to stabilize a listener. What, so you said that this was something that you couldn't record or or write down. So was or was this something that was that you were actually listening to, or something that you were hearing in your own mind? Well, it took me a little while of investigation and research to get a better understanding of what that was all about. And uh, what I've come to the realization is that it's a non-linear sound. It has no beginning and no ending, and it doesn't. It's not peering in the three-dimensional realm. It's, it's the sound of the infinite field vibrating so that my hearing was not a linear hearing experience. It was an all-immersive, as if I was the medium. The, I am the listener and the medium and the music. It was all a unified field experience. So I wasn't using the ears. And I later learned out that we have that experience vibrating through the cerebral cortex in the brain. And that we hear it as a pulsation and you may not even want to use the term hearing, but you feel it or you acknowledge it as a pulsational experience which translates closest to an audio experience. Like I said, I, I translated it into a choir, a brass symphonic choir. So to answer your question, uh, the hearing was done through the cerebral cortex and it received as a pulsation experience that translated into a musical reference. And it was not coming from outside of my, my physical body or the physical environment, but was as a result of my meditation experience. It happened during a time of the evening when I generally go into deep meditation. So I was very receptive on a transcendental level to hearing this otherworldly music at that time. This was in the mid-70s, and the music, as I recall, was a very bold declaration that there is no past or future, that, that time is consistent present moment. So I have to check myself when I talk about it as though it happened in a year of 1974 when the underlying teaching is that it's a continuous uh, non-beginning non-ending sound continuum available now and as I acclimate my consciousness it appears all over my awareness but I can hear it now. Well, I can tune into it now. And it's called Nadam in the Indian tradition. And the yogic tradition, Nadam, as the uh, inner sound current that's used by yogis and yoginis to lift the awareness out of the personal separate body into the universal unified field body. Have you ever taken this and tried to translate it to any of the recordings that you've released or tried to capture it in any way even for personal reasons what I learned or came to understand is that I did not need to duplicate that music 
But having had that experience, I was told by a mentor that it was an initiation which expanded my sense of spatial awareness and time so that the music I bring forth now is informed by the space and timelessness that I experience. And secondly, that um, when I've tried to reach for that same sonic experience, it's best happened through electric zither or hammered zither when I do, which is more of a random blitz of the zither so that all the strings are ringing simultaneously and there's no one melodic figure sticking out, but like all the strings are celebrating and vibrating at the same time to create this wall of sound. And do you, you know, I, I wondered about that too with, um, do you think that um, recording can fully capture that or do you feel that when you've recorded, um, you know, your music and obviously the goal is to have some resonance and some some sort of tap into that that vein do you feel like it's possible or do you feel that it gets parts part way there or like what, what are your thoughts on actually trying to capture something like that in a fixed medium uh, I I my feeling is that I gave up a long time ago of trying to capture that listening experience what I can do is represent uh, my advanced or expanded emotional state or conscious awareness as a result of having had that experience and somehow my enthusiasm or my dedication and devotion to the music that I do do does relax the audience relax the listener or even better it points to that inaudible experience, that transcendental experience, and encourages them or supports them of going within and waiting for or being prepared to recognize that emotional experience themselves. The reason why I don't think I could produce it out here is because the nature of the sound is non-physical. It has no ending or beginning. And the instruments I use on this side of the veil are are to produce a music that has a beginning and an ending and that the sound travels over physical distance to someone's ears. Uh, the closest I've come to duplicating that experience is to reach for an Im immersive sound experience where the listener is immersed in uh, the sound and it draws them into an experience of immersion which can awaken some inner intuition that allows them to feel the entirety of the universe as an immersive experience. And that when I withdraw my music, my music I can use as a premeditative music to set the environment for the listener to go within and have that inner hearing experience. I can use my music to point to the ability to have this experience and I can use music to prepare an environment um, so that when my music is withdrawn from that environment the listener is left in a sense of stillness and quietude that allows him to hear the more subtle serene inner music and how 
how are we ready for that? I mean, you know, I, I feel like I'll take it way down to a, a much more common, uh, uh, you know, example, which would be that we, you know, there's great records that, that exist out there uh, in all genres. And, you know, sometimes you'll put that record on and it really doesn't hit, you know. And then you could go back to it you know, a month later, a year later, five years later, and really sort of be open and ready for it, you know, and it could, there's a whole ton of, you know, variables in why music resonates. But when I, I was curious on your ideas and thoughts on, you know, you had to be ready for you to, for, to have that experience, to be able to sort of receive that and be, jump in the stream, so to speak, and accept that and go with it. Um, you know, so so how how are people ready, or when are people ready, or or is that an un, unanswerable que- question, probably? Well, I can answer that from I. You're very perceptive. I was ready. I had prepared myself for it. I didn't know that it existed for me to be ready for it. It was uh, a result of experimenting with and exploring deeper states of meditation that I had prepared myself to to attract this higher listening experience. It's a meditative listening experience. Some might even call it samadhi, where the awareness is very present and very in a very sustained state of still presence. And so my preparation for it was meditation through breathing, through relaxing my identification with all the titles so that I could feel the pure I am, the I am that has no titles and learning how to sit still for over 21 minutes so the ability to sit still and to be conscious without the mind being busy with linear thinking all of those things I had prepared myself through experimental and explorational meditation and so at the time that I was hearing this music I had prepared myself for internal expanded awareness. Now, the general lay public, um, they could have this experience while doing uh, psychotropic substances, hallucinogenic substances. They could probably have the experience after hearing a very inspiring orchestral concert somewhere. And after the music ends, they might just go outside and walk by themselves silently and have a welling up of an inner response to the outer music. Um, some people have what is called doctors labeled tentinitis. And I'm wondering if these people are have been visited by an inner gift but don't know how to receive it, like you mentioned earlier not prepared to regard it as a positive experience and their response is to go to a professional medical person and have them either um, remove it or uh, mask it and the reason that they are so uh, fervent at trying to do that is because the sound represents the immediacy of the present moment the eternal nowness and so it's annoying to have this sound going on if your lifestyle and your spirituality 
is not uh, oriented toward being in the present moment or coming home to the totality of the present moment. If you're if you're still attached to the world and uh, and your thoughts and of being in the external world, tendonitis, as it's defined, is an annoyance and a distraction. But if you're a yogi, a yogini, or a spiritual athlete, or a very interested inward traveler, you'll find that this sound is very helpful in keeping the consciousness centered in present time. Are you talking about uh, your ears ringing? Yes, the ears ringing. That uh, I would, I'm suspicious that some of it or all of it is being misunderstood. It's what's called spiritual emergency. A person is having a spiritual experience, but they're they're defining it as a medical emergency instead of as a spiritual opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, from somebody that my whose ears ring all the time. <laughs> um, my question is, you know, your, your thoughts on on you know all of the elements that that cr- help create these these sort of awakenings and and ultimate sort of realizations of uh, really speaking to the power of music. Yes, the power of music I feel is in its suggestion, its ability to suggest. Um, I I allow for the possibility, the very real possibility that at the core of everyone, including yourself and myself, is a memory of ourselves being one, being with source, being eternal, being perfect, and that music can activate that memory, whether it's trance music, whether it's uh, sacred music, whether it's uh, exploratory, avant-garde, new music, depending on the individual, they can, a music can strike a chord and like a music might suggest to them a memory of being infinitely euphoric or in deep equilibrium or music can suggest a harmonization of subconscious stress patterns leaving the listener reconnecting with a, a spacious sense of peace and harmony where they are. So music works through suggestion, that's its power. Music can suggest the movement of breath, the comfortable movement of fluids through the body. Music can suggest the, uh, the resolution of stress and congestion in the mental or emotional body. Uh, music can also suggest joy and celebration and an invitation to dance and to get up and move the body or to smile and laugh or to welcome society uh, and to move in society with joy and with uh, celebration. So the suggestion power of music is its power. And uh, whether we listen to a Beatles song or listen to an orchestral number, something in the music can trigger a memory, maybe a memory from this this lifetime, either a romantic memory or a childhood memory or a beautific memory of encounters with nature, or music can suggest even deeper an eternal memory, eternal memory of ourselves being one with all 
and being eternal, that music, especially in the Indian tradition, that incorporates drone elements very strongly, using the tambora or using a shruti box to establish a drone that's faintly heard during the execution of Indian music. And that element can suggest to the listener a connection to the eternity, the continuum of the present moment. So yes, music's power is through its ability to suggest. And in the hands of the composer, and the hands of the musician, uh, the sound mixer or the DJ, we can narrate the listener's inner journey. Uh, whether it's superficial, whether it's just personal or just contemporary lifestyle music, or that it allows the listener to drop even deeper into trance and to connect with the deeper field of the soul's presence. Laughter has been a huge part of your, your workshops and your meditation workshops, and um, as, as is dance and, and just movement in general, which you just talked about. Can you, can you uh, elaborate a little bit about that on that? Laughter has been a staple in my social life, for friends and families, academic life, and the career life. I mean, when I'm traveling uh, solo or with an ensemble, laughter and humor and comedy just erupt all over the place. And I appreciate the ability of laughter to relax the body and level the playing field. I used laughter or comedy when I was growing up in a rather nut tough neighborhood. And I, I would be known as a person who could relax the bullies in the neighborhood with humor. And stand-up comedy became uh, a focus of mine. Red Skelton, um, uh, Flip Wilson, Bill Cosby, uh, the comedians of the time, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks. And I appreciated what they did because I thought what they did was sacred work. When you can get the human spirit to temporarily drop its... Uh, overwhelmed with world situations or with personal problems and just give the whole physique and give the whole breath and the whole mental structure to the behavior of laughter, the total release. I admired that so much that I wanted to get my hands on that medicine and distribute it myself. And in high school I did comedy and did some comedy writing, got to college and my uh, extracurricular activities was teaming up with funny brothers or funny people at Howard and doing stand-up comedy for homecoming talent shows or different situations wherever we could get a chance to get people to laugh. I was uh, inspired by the likes of Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby while I was in college to come to New York and try out at the comedy auditions with the uh, vision of if I could get a foothold in the door of comedy and earn some money, I would establish an apartment with a grand piano and I would turn around and commit myself to composing music, new music. But along the way, um, 
I started experimenting with meditation and that opened up my piano improvisation skills big time. And uh, it also, uh, comedy showed me that um, as much as I'm interested in comedy, I wasn't interested in the idea of becoming a stand-up comedic comedian after all, because the early stages meant staying up late and in smoke-filled coffee houses and nightclubs waiting to go on late. And I thought maybe I didn't want a career of that. So at some point I relaxed doing the stand-up comedy and returned to full-time music. And somewhere along the way, someone introduced me to Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh Osho, a teacher, a, a very uh, controversial but very impacting spiritual teacher around that time. And he or his followers had published a book of his guidance for meditation practices. And in the book, on one page, there was a guidance for laughter meditation. And up to that point, I didn't realize that you could put meditation and laughter in the same sentence. And I used his suggestions, which was upon awakening in the morning, before opening your eyes, stretch your body, your arms, your legs, and then dive into your laughter for 15 minutes and do this for seven days. I tried it and I was amazed at the results. I'd never given myself to the laughing while lying down and I discovered how much more of my body got into the experience. And I also discovered that after five minutes or so, I could ignite myself into authentic laughter as I began to observe, you know, my natural personal body language when I'm laughing, my facial postures, gestures, and my breath patterns. And I learned to identify them and I could use them to get myself back into that laughter place. Uh, my music workshops at that time were for college, campus, New Age uh, conferences. And I began incorporating five minutes of my own laughter exercises into my music workshops. And the laughter took off so big that it became a workshop all of its own in the early 80s. And there I was conducting laughter workshops in hours that were acceptable. I mean, not the nightclub hours and in a smoke-free environment. And uh, the laughter workshops were conducted with me being on the same level with the participants. So there was no hierarchy of me uh, guiding someone or being the leader. I would set the workshops and let the workshops pretty much guide themselves. Um, it involved um, taking people into the meditation zone. So there I was bringing in a spiritual aspect of, um, of laughter, is using laughter to take people into the deep relaxation and meditative zone. So I'm able to really tap into my earlier appreciation of laughter as a sacred medicine, but now I'm able to happened to that uh, vision without polarizing people, using, not using comedy material that polarizes people, but using 
the laughter reflex to bring people into a state of relaxation and meditation. And, and I've heard you say that, you know, it's just uh, laughter for the sake of it. Um, but it seems like that translates to music for the sake of it. I think you, uh, you do music uh, for different reasons than a lot of people that are making music. <laughs> Uh, that's very so, that because I can identify with the early stages of jamming for the joy of just being in the musical environment with friends. But after uh, doing inner work and inner soul searching and inner resetting, deciding that my gift is a gift that can be shared in terms of using it to serve other people's internal visions or helping people to go into places of relaxation, tranquilness, and inner introspection in a way that they can't do on their own. So I, as a music artist, offer my service as a planetary servant in that manner. I, I love the, the story of how, uh, of you playing in Washington Square Park and um, getting a note from Brian Eno. Um, I, if you wouldn't mind sort of sharing that story, um, I would love to, you know, share that with our readers. But also I was curious about that record, Day of Radiance, that you ended up making with Brian. Um, as part of his ambient series of records, music for airports, etc. Um, you know, it is a very, it's a departure in terms of those records because it is not, it is not a mellow record. I mean, it's pretty intense. I mean, it is, it is, it is in fact very intense. And it's, it's, um, again, it's one of those records where, to be honest, the first time, because I was expecting it to be like music for airports or w within that realm of a Harold Budd, the Pearl, or any of those kind of ambient records. Um, and it was not, so I wasn't ready, but then I actually put it on uh, years later and put on the headphones and, and really tried to immerse myself in it. And it was transportive. And I was like, oh, I kind of get it now. Um, so I was curious, what, like, how what was making that record like and what was Brian's... Uh, input on that record and what was that collaboration like? Well your curiosity about the ambient uh, direction of that recording was right on Jeff because uh, that album after its release was not often categorized along with the other ambient because it, it, it stuck out like is it like a sore thumb <laughs> but it was uh, it's appreciated in its own way, apart from the tranquil stillness of the er earlier ambient uh, recordings by Brian. And when Brian approached me, well, in Washington Square Park, one balmy uh, autumn evening, Washington Square Park, there in the heart of the NYU college community, it was an area of uh, the park that I played often. I would set myself up on a, a mat, I'd sit cross-legged and um, just churn out this music, this soundscape music with an electric zither going through this small Panasonic tape recorder that doubled as a loudspeaker. 
And so after playing that uh, performance, one night this couple came over to me and started a conversation about Fripp and Eno and suggested that I might be interested in tuning into what they're doing. I didn't know what they were talking about. They kept saying Fripp and Eno. And eventually I got it that they were talking about somebody named Robert Fripp and Brian Eno. And uh, a month later, I'm there at the same place. I mean, I'm there quite frequently, but a month later at the same place, I'm finishing up my playing at night, maybe 11 o'clock at night, and counting my change in my zither case. And there was this uh, piece of paper that looked like it was ripped from a very expensive notebook and uh, very intelligible, very legible handwriting, something like, Dear Sir, please excuse this scraggly piece of paper or this impromptu message, but I'm wondering if you would mind talking, we could discuss about your contributing music to a project I'm working on, signed Brian Eno. And I thought, wow, what a coincidence. And uh, I had not yet become clear of who Brian was, but the momentum of the conversation with the people a month earlier established that he was somebody that, that uh, to be reckoned with. And so I took the piece of paper, counted my change, and the next day I called him and we arranged to meet at his loft. He was living in the village at that time. And I took a jar of juice with me, just an offering. And so we sat and talked about electronics, music, world events, psychological or philosophical ideas. Then we got around to talking about ambient. The first time I had heard the word ambient. And he was patiently and kindly offering to get me to understand the concept of ambient. And uh, I wasn't sure I was getting it. He was using things like music as an environment to be in. It's not music to be the center of attention. And based on what I thought he was saying, I felt sure that if we went into a studio, something interesting would happen if he was willing to just point along the way. And so we agreed to go into a studio and he set up the studio situation in which the Day of Radiance would evolve. He introduced me to double tracking. The first time I have double tracked the zither to create that luscious chorus experience. He introduced me to the idea of using high quality microphones on the zither to capture more of the juice of the zither's acoustic presence. And uh, we have also found out in our first recording that the high vibrational energy of the hammered zither work was perfect, but that studio was not perfect for the very meditative side because mechanical sounds from other parts of that recording studio building was leaking into the recording. So six months later, we finished the entire album by going to another studio to accomplish the meditative tracks. And that music was released on EG Records, the first release. Um, there, there it was. And I remember leaving the recording studio at that time, 
that Brian, under his arms, was clutching this big box of multi-track uh, tape, analog tape. So that was the uh, reality of that time of recording multi-track. So there's my Brian Eno met me in Washington Square Park and recorded Day of Radiance. On the, though there it was evolved and my feeling at that time was that the music should offer itself to the quietude of the listener. And though I restrained myself from putting too much linear notes on the album. If you look at the back of the album, the minimal uh, amount of wording or printed material just to acknowledge the internal spaciousness that I wanted the music to guide the listener to. And what was what was the feedback and what was the sort of direction that, that Brian provided in terms of production? Was he Did he just want you to play and then he curated or was it um, more specific? Well, he heard me in Washington Square Park so he pretty much pointed at me uh, going into that vernacular of hammered zither and uh, when I had finished doing uh, the first track he suggested I do other tracks over it and that was his uh, input to get that spacious luscious sound also afterwards listening back over the years I realized that he did some tweaking with the lexicon um, harmonizer rather even tied harmonizer to uh, accent some of the um, overtones he also did something in the studio very trippy he slowed down one of the hammer zither tracks so that it it was more of a gentle movement rather than a rushed dance. And that was new to my ears, the idea of altering the playback speed. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and it, you know, for me, like, I probably wouldn't have, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me to listen to your records and that record especially very quietly like i when i listen to that record now i put it on very quietly and and it is uh the intent is to enhance the environment rather than a specific listening um uh you know i can put the cans on and listen to it and kind of transport but but for sort of when i want to just put something on that creates things in the air while I'm, you know, cleaning or doing the dishes or th just trying to think or write. I put it on very quietly. And I think that that influence of Brian is, is probably, uh, that's an interesting one for me. I was like, oh, I didn't, I never saw, I never thought of it like that. And so he, he sort of presented your, you know, your music in a different um, arena, so to speak, you know. Yes, over the years I've gotten reports from people who have listened to the music. Um, uh, a grown-up person from Japan told me that when he was young, as a teenager, he and his friends would get into a room, put the record on, 
and uh, do some cannabis and turn the lights out and trip on the record. Another teacher from the Midwest of the United States says he used the music to calm his classes down. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool, and I, I bet, I'm sure that's, that's fun to hear um, years later, you know, when you put something out into the world that um, that's the magic of a record. It might have taken you just a few sessions to create it or a few hours or, or just gone down live, but then it, it, it lives and it, and it has a life, a uh, different life and different meaning to many different people. So, um, I wanted to talk to you about, um, uh, tunings because I thought, uh, and, and two things about that, you know, how did you originally sort of come to create the tunings for the zither that were non-standard and um what are your thoughts on non-standard tunings in terms of uh meaning based off of a440 um because there's a lot of talk around uh and a lot you know they've done a lot of research on not you know tuning away from that and having that be more of a having more of a human resonance my research on that, Jeff, has been I went for a whole season of concert touring with 432 to see if I could hear results or get feedback. And uh, I'm wondering if my vision and my enthusiasm and my skill at performing just overrides any significance in that. I could not come to any definitive a decision about whether 432 was better than 440. Um, I I do what I did do is do some research online to see what different sources were saying about it, and it seems like somewhere at the end of World War II, certain persons in Germany decided to establish 440 as the concert pitch because it was an aggressive tuning and it uh, it kept people on edge. And that uh, the, a counter response to that tuning was 432, which supposedly was in harmony with the Schumann resonance of the planet and allowed the listener to listen to music while feeling more effortlessly connected to the the vibration feel of the planet. But I've heard since then that the Schumann resonance figures have shifted. Uh, so what to say? Uh, my suspicions are that does the body know that you're doing A440 or A432 or A444? Um, I'm still without a clear indication of what it means or if it's really uh, impacting. Some music consciousness people feel that it's not, that it's not an issue. Um, I think it would be a bigger issue for record companies if they were to discover that A440 was detrimental to the planet and was the reason why the planet is in a martial uh, state, uh, the confusion on the planet is is uh, uh, the result of 
the mass musics in A440. Uh, if that were to come to light, and if that were real, I think a lot of record companies would not welcome that with open <laughs> open arms. Uh, to learn that your music is not the medicine, but is the poison of the age. That, I think, would be a very real issue. And to that would block uh, any flimsy or superficial statements on that subject. So, in Italy, I understand that uh, voice teachers or vocalists find that A432 is a more sane frequency to pursue their career in, and that Italy might be a place where 432 is re receiving a very strong respect. Yeah, that's interesting. And, um, you know, in terms of A440 causing, uh, you know, global chaos, I, I, we can put that on the list of uh, conspiracy theories of uh, <laughs> the long list of them. Yeah, I think that would be a valid experience if we could, like, tune out 440 for a week globally and just music of 432 wherever it's available. It sounds like an impossible uh, experiment. But that would be, uh, that could be an interesting experiment of immerse someone in 440 and then deprive them of 440 and in exchange give them 432 and to observe of course there would have to be a what do you call it a placebo or that a group that isn't in being impacted just just to be fair man if we could pull that off mm. probably it could be oh. conducted in uh, penal institutions or in a hospital where people are captive and, and they could be subjected to 432 without knowing it and then to 440 without knowing it and to observe any uh, differences. It would be good if we could see a vivid result the same way we see the vivid results on the nights of full moons and observing the traffic in hospitals. I understand that very clearly the traffic in hospitals is increased during full moon. So we know that the full moon has a, has a very impact, very distinct impact on people. <laughs> well, then, you know, yeah, then everybody would want to go to jail and maybe that would be the ultimate rehabilitation. Maybe that's our answer. Whoa. <laughs> maybe we're in jail uh, 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 audio jail. Maybe that's what 440 is. It's a form of <laughs> audio imprisonment, and we're imprisoned in 440, walking down the street. And then, oh man, this is this has opened up a whole new, you know, mm -hmm. whole new can. On that same note, I'm just thinking of the consumer mechanics uh, society, where consumers can custom design their appliances to make sound in a certain key or in a certain chord. Like I understand that car horns, when you hear a car horn, you're hearing two horns at the, two horns at the same time. They're either a fourth or a fifth interval apart to create that 
sound that cuts through the uh, environmental noise. But if air conditioners and uh, refrigerators uh, were made to make sounds that could harmonize the human spirit, I'd say that might be a way to go. We're talking about ambient sound healing, using ambient sounds and noises in our environment to uh, heal and to organize ourselves in a more socially harmonious way. That's, that's heavy. Yes, uh, heavy, but I believe, you know, when, you, uh, when the phone rings, it, um, even the, the ringing of the phone can be a nuisance or annoyance at times, unless you're expecting a royalty check. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the way the phone rings, the way the, core, the, way the doorbell rings, uh, and even those hand... All those hand dryers in airports where you use the bathroom and then you put your hand in this device and turn it on and it blows air. Even that, I think, can be very disnerving, unnerving uh, sound to be subjected to. So we're talking about a society where all the sounds have been custom designed to be harmonious to the human spirit. There is something to that. I mean, we know I mean, music is used as therapy and music is used to relax people and music is used as part of yoga to help people get into a meditative state or, or, or help them with their practice. So, you know, that it, it's not as crazy as, as it sounds. I mean, it, it's actually a viable uh, thing. I mean, will it happen? Probably not. <laughs> it might happen in a prototype, like presenting it in a movie or a play or a story as a yeah. fantasy and let it trigger somebody's imagination. I mean, you're doing it with uh, eco-friendly uh, products, knowing how to create a, a pollution-free home and not using like things that outgas or yeah. pollute. And so you've got people who have put time and energy in making sure their home is totally green. So I'm talking about how about making sure your sonic environment is green. That's an amazing idea. On the way to that, you have artists who are producing recordings, and they make a, a contribution to that, whether they're called new age artists or healing artists or ambient artists. The idea of putting instruments into the hands of the public that help them to uh, navigate and to create their sound environment, even if it means they have to overpower the sound of the refrigerator or the, or the air conditioner. Like you're saying, they, they'd have to be held captive, but in their own homes doing it, you know, you just, GE just makes the refrigerator that actually has the proper resonant frequency that, that creates calmness and clarity without, you don't, you know, it should just be the standard just as part of a, a, a public service. <laughs> yes, it might even design a special muffler that when air passes through it creates a harmonious sound so that you would put this on your little chihuahua dog so when the dog barks, you can <laughs> Well, just imagine if every car on the road had a, had a harmonic device out of its tailpipe that created like, I mean, if you took all the traffic noise in New York City and it became like a, a giant global resonance citywide, can you imagine what that would be like? It'd probably drive you insane. It wouldn't be white noise anymore. It would just be like, uh, a harmonic drone 
Yeah, just everywhere you went was like a harmonious, resonant drone. Mm-hmm. Man, I say we go for it. <laughs> Revolution on level. I did have uh, one more question, and, and, and that's how, how can we become better listeners? One way is to practice deep breathing to relax our nervous system. It might be a minute or five minutes of alternate nostril breathing or find a breathing pattern that's comfortable and convenient. Uh, but breathing is one way of relaxing the nervous system. And that's, that is strongly advised in order to be present in the moment, to hear and to feel music. Also, uh, diet. Diet is important. Uh, I mean, if you were to eat some red hot chili peppers and uh, a gallon of Cuddy Sark, uh, what kind of situation would you be ready to listen to? But I'm saying <laughs> your, your diet before, if you're intending to have a dedicated listening session and you want to prepare yourself, breathing, yoga is... Ex or stretch and breathing exercises to relax your system so that you can be prepared to be here, to uh, turn off distracting things like the phone or if you're expecting uh, any distractions to somehow direct them to another time. Also to give yourself a relaxed situation, a comfortable chair, or if you're into yoga postures, a comfortable sitting situation. But a comfortable listening situation and also a comfortable tech situation, whether you're listening on good quality headphones, earbuds, or good speaker system. And that plays a large part to, to uh, treat yourself to a very deep therapeutic listening experience. Deep therapeutic listening experience. You relax the body, relax the breath. Uh, allow the in, the body system to be in a comfortable state. Um, whatever that means, get prepared. Give yourself a comfortable situ sitting situation. Have uh, optimal tech, audio tech, whatever you can afford. Ford. On uh, those are my suggestions. I really thank you for uh, for chatting today. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.